Okay, all right. Zone. Hello and welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. Today is March the 9th. Is that right? My cursor isn't working. Let me look at my phone. Today is March the 9th. It is Tuesday, March the 9th. And we'll be looking at four new passages in the Bible, according to the Robert Murray McShane reading plan. And they are Exodus chapter 20, Luke chapter 23, Job chapter 38, and 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Join me in praying. Heavenly Father, we pray, giving thanks to you as the God who's blessed us with everything, not least our Lord Jesus Christ. And so please, would you remind us of this blessing in Christ through your word today. Help us to look out for this, to be expectant for this pronouncement of the gospel, that we might continually respond to it with thankfulness and gratefulness and repentance and joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On to Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You've seen for yourselves that I've talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it on hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now this last bit, uh, it's just the beginning of the next section talking about all these rules for worship. And the headline is still these 10 words or these 10 commandments. That's how we commonly call them at the beginning of the chapter. But the last bit is important because it's talking about worship. You know, what it means for you to uh, worship God in the way that he has prescribed. So he says, you know, don't have other gods to be with me. Verse 23, whether gods of silver or gods of gold, there shouldn't be God plus other gods. God is the only God. And he gives instructions about building this altar. You know, he's supposed to build this altar of earth, verse 24, and make sacrifice on it, burn offerings, peace offerings, sheep and oxen. And as a response, you know, where in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. God will bless them through these sacrifices, through these acts of worship. And then one final instruction, verse 25, not to use any tools when building these altars, especially out of stone, you know, don't use a tool. I guess they're just meant to use like rocks that are already, um, actually, I don't know, (laughs) maybe just suitable rocks that kind of like fit together like Lego, maybe, maybe. Um, uh, Wielding your tool on it will profane it and also not to step on the steps of the altar. But uh, again, I said that this last bit frames uh, this whole section of Exodus, you know, this whole section where you're in front of the mountain in terms of worship. This is what it means to come before a holy God and to give him all the honor, all the due, all the worship that he deserves. And I think that therefore there is that connection between verse 23, no gods before me with the very beginning of uh, the chapter, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. So it kind of like frames the Ten Commandments in terms of worship. This is what it means for you to live as people who are worshiping this God uh, exclusively and obediently in all of your lives. So it's not just a to-do list, you know, like rules for in like church. Sometimes you go into church and say, don't chew chewing gum, that kind of rules. Or, you know, don't talk during the sermon, which no one no one listens to. <laughs> they still talk or fall asleep, that kind of thing. But it's not that. It's not things that you're not supposed to do. But this is what it means for you to live in such a way that you reflect something about God in the way that you live. Worship is 24-7. It's your life that is lived out in obedience, like an offering before God. And it's in obedience to his word. So let's go uh, bit by bit through the Ten Commandments. Um yeah, and look at them uh, one by one. I, I want to preface this by saying that I've never actually studied <laughs> this chapter uh, properly. I've never preached on the Ten Commandments before. I did like a Bible study on this maybe 13 years ago. My Bible study went through the entire 
book of Exodus. And that's what I'm relying on, that, that 10, 11, 12-year-old Bible study that I looked at a long time ago. Uh, I've heard sermons on this before, uh, but yeah, I'm just going through this again. So I'm really excited about this, but also please, you know, like I say, with every comment that I make, every kind of reflection, these are just personal reflections, uh, first impressions. Please, by all means, uh, read a commentary and check everything that I say. So it begins with God speaking to them. Verse 1, all these words saying, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God reminds them of his salvation. And then he gives them his laws, meaning he saves them and then he calls for their obedience and not the other way around. They didn't say, you obey me and then I'll save you as a condition. No, no, no. You know, some people think, that that's how God works. Indeed, a lot of religions work that way. If you obey these rules, you do worship this way, you give the jaw stick, you do these particular actions in the temple, then God will bless you. Then God will accept you. Then God will save you. But no, uh, in, the God, in the Bible, the God of the Bible uh, shows us grace by saving us first and then calling us to live out that salvation through obedience. So it's a gift, uh, not a condition. So verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. So um, yeah, it's, it frames that idea of worship. You know, uh, God is not one of many other gods. And later on, he talks about how he created the earth, and therefore he is the God over creation. Everything else in creation, you know, idolatry especially, is part of creation, is worshiping a created thing. Sometimes, you know, Mother Nature, that kind of thing. Or even just literal idols like statues, which are common, at least in Eastern culture, where you have these idols and you build statues of them to represent them. And that too is not something that you're meant to do in terms of worshiping God. Build this kind of statue like, like this, you know, like this kind of thing. And um, yeah, and this carry, that's why verse 3 and 4 are connected. No other gods before me or in front of me or next to me, that kind of thing. And verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, meaning something that looks like something around you, an animal, a tree, a mountain, that kind of thing. Because God is other. He's not part of this creation. He created this creation. Verse five, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Uh -huh. So, in other words, if you bow down to them, you are giving worship that should be exclusive to God. And if you give that worship to something other than God, someone other than God, God will be jealous. He says, I, I, I am owed this worship. You should not do that. And he says, visiting the iniquity or the sins of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love, steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So here is this um, very serious implication of idolatry, you know, visiting the iniquity down to the third and fourth generation. So it flows down the generations. But also uh, the imbalance of grace, showing love to thousands of generations for those who love and keep God's commandments. Hmm. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name 
in vain. So here the Lord, it's in capitals, L-O-R-D, and it's, oh, I'm reading from the ESV, so um, some translations will actually have like Yahweh, the I am, the name that God revealed to Moses. Moses said, you know, what's the name of the God that has sent me in case the people ask me that? And God tells them, tell them my name. And he tells them it is the Lord, the I am, the everlasting God, ever being God, the God who is with him. And so this name is not to be taken lightly, uh, in vain. Uh, the context here might be referring to, you know, um, law courts, whereby I say, I swear by the name of God. So that there is some uh, application to that whereby in order to reinforce your truthfulness, you use God's name to kind of like reinforce that. He says, even though it's valid, you know, maybe to be careful to do something like that. But also just uh, profanity, just being conscious about God's name because uh, God's name reveals that identity, his character, his I am character, his ever being character of God. And only the people here know his name. You know, he's only revealed it to them. And for us as well, you know, therefore to be maybe um, just conscious that we are speaking about a real person. Imagine if you were talking about, oh, Kelvin, this kind of Kelvin did this, Kelvin did that. Then, you know, oh, that's a real person. But sometimes we don't realize that God is a real person as well. And that when we use words, like even the word God and the Lord, you know, that we're talking about God. Imagine if God is in the room going, oh, what did you say about me? You know, that's kind of consciousness and carefulness when it comes to referring to God by name. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day, a resting day to the Lord your God. And he says, you, you shall not do any work on the seventh day, not you, not anyone in your family, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, even the animals. <laughs> Don't make them work the ground, in other words. Or the sojourner who's within your gates. So it's not like you, holiday, and all your servants can have to do all the work. No, everyone is meant to rest because God rested on the seventh day. And he points back to God as his act of uh, creating the world as a creator, but he's giving us this rest. You know, he's ca calling us to join us in this rest that he now stands in. He created the world. There's nothing else to be done. And now he's resting and he's calling us to join us, join him in this rest. He says, therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, this holy day, this holiday. And the Sabbath was the seventh day, meaning referring to Saturday. Uh, Christians, of course, meet on a Sunday, which is the first day. And that's to commemorate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He rose on the first day of the week. And it signifies that new creation, that new Sabbath rest that we are entering. Not just the original one at creation, but the one that points forward to the new creation, the new resurrection life that we will share with him. So that's the reason why Christians meet and rest on Sunday. But either way, you know, this rest talks about the finished work of God. In one case, the finished work of God in creation. And then he looks at it and goes, very, very good. And then he rested. And, you know, if you think of that job or that project that you were doing at work, and you're working at it really, really hard, and then your holiday comes up, 
and you go, okay, I'm going to take a break now. Sometimes you can't take a break, can you? You know, you're still thinking about that work, you're still thinking about that email, and it's just causing you to not be able to rest well. But imagine you finish that work, you know, all the job is done, and you're so tired. By the end of it, you sleep, and you just sleep so well. You wake up the next morning, and you go for that holiday, and you go, oh, you know, every drink tastes good, you know, every sunshine, you know, it makes it feel like a special day. And it's that kind of rest. It's the rest that comes at the end of that finished work. So in other words, it's a motivation for us to finish the work that we need to do before we rest, you know, the six days and then the seventh day to properly rest. It's not just to put down the work and then all through Sunday, you're thinking, oh, I wonder if the assignment was done well and what are they going to come back to me with on the next day? But to try to make the most of the time that you have to work so that you can rest properly on that day. But also it talks for it, talks for it, uh, points forward to the finished work of redemption, of salvation, that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he opened up the way into this new rest of salvation. There is nothing else that God needs to do in order to secure our salvation, to open up heaven, to give us that forgiveness in heaven with him. So it's that reassurance again that when we rest with God, even right now, um, it's a true rest. We have been truly forgiven. We've been truly blessed. We have this true relationship with him because Jesus Christ on the cross finished that work of salvation. Verse 12, honor your father and mother that, and this is a promise, if you honor your father and mother, your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. I just want to refer to Ephesians because I suspect there is a similar, similar promise there. So um, if I go to Ephesians chapter 6, um, verse 2, honor your father and mother, and he says there, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So there is this earthly promise on one hand, you know, if you honor your parents, you love them and you honor them and this idea applies to not just kids but to anyone who has parents you know to honor them treat them with respect look after them in their old age then there's that relationship that you enjoy with them and live long in the land that means you'll be blessed by god as well but it also points forward to again that fuller blessing you know living long in the in the proper promised land that points forward to heaven, you know, uh, being able to live in that relationship. In other words, the relationship that we have with one another now prefigures that relationship in heaven. Relationships are eternal. Relationships, especially with, with the family of Christ, this is something that we practice now in order to, to prepare for the life then. So there's this prefigurement of this eternal eternality of relationships in honoring your elders, honoring your father and your mother. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 15, you shall not steal. And verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the, next, the last few talk about don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And it talks about not killing anyone, <laughs> not committing adultery, not stealing anything. And the thing to notice is it's causing harm, but causing harm to someone else. You know, when you murder, you're killing someone else or you're taking the life of someone else. You break, it's that you can argue with someone, but, you know, murder really finalizes <laughs> that hatred. You commit adultery, you're breaking someone else's marriage. 
or you're breaking your own. Uh, you shall not steal, um, taking something that does not belong to you. Uh, you're stealing someone else's blessing. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Um, and this is causing harm by telling lies. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servants or his female servants or his ox, his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. And here the idea of neighbor is uh, someone who is in proximity to you. Uh, think of a school, school classmate or an office colleague. It's not talking about Bill Gates. You know, Bill Gates is so far away. Oh, well, I covered his billions and billions of dollars. That's, that's not really coveting <laughs> in a sense. Coveting is like going on Facebook going and saying, oh, how come my classmate seems to be more successful than I? Or how come you know that person got the promotion, but I didn't? Or how come that person got the praise and I didn't get the praise, even though I did all the kind of all the work and that kind of thing? And it's wanting something that belongs to someone else that you think you deserve, and you don't necessarily have to act on it, but just that want, that coveting, uh, whether it's a house, someone's spouse, their servants, their property, their ox, their donkey anything that belongs to your neighbor. And again, this breaks that relationship because you're no longer rejoicing in their blessing, but you're envying and you're despising them and you're despising God for blessing them instead of you. Now, the thing about all these things is Jesus um, actually deals with them in the Sermon of the Mount and he says, you've heard it said. And when he says you've heard it said, it means that people didn't quite understand what God was getting at uh, in terms of how to apply these commandments because they just thought, okay, as long as I don't kill anyone, I'm okay. As long as I don't actually um, uh, break my marriage and that's okay. But Jesus says actually the intent behind it was what God was dealing with. That murder, again, that relationship, that breakdown, that all these rules we're talking about that is broken by sin. So he says that even if you hate your brother, you've already committed. Uh, you've broken this commandment of do not murder. If you just look at another person's spouse lustfully, you've committed adultery already in your heart. And therefore, that intent and that motivation is just as punishable. Uh, it's, it's breaking the commandment as much as the act itself. And what this reveals is just how difficult it is to follow these commandments on the one hand. You know, you think of the rich young ruler. He says, all these commandments I've done. And he probably did do them. But then still his heart was tied to the things that would have otherwise, you know, betrayed his true motivations. You know, when Jesus says, let go and give away all your money, he couldn't do that. So um, it shows on the one hand how difficult it is to obey these commandments. And Jesus raises the bar as well. You know, if you've already hated someone, if you've already broken the commandments, instead of just killing them. And therefore, entering the kingdom of God is not by doing these commandments. And, and that's the point I'm trying to get to. All these commandments are pictures or fruits of the salvation that we have. Is are, they are not requirements for us to do in order to be saved. So how should I put this again? They are character traits of someone who is saved not requirements for someone who wants to be saved. God saves you, verse 2, I've saved you out of the land of slavery, and therefore I give you these laws for you to live out the salvation, not do these laws, obey me, and then I'll save you. So it's the other way around. It shows God's grace, but it also shows God's character. 
in these rules. He wants us to live according to His ways. He wants us to live in harmony and love with one another as we love Him. And yeah, so there you go. Exodus chapter 20, looking at the Ten Commandments. It's all a summary of worshiping God, what it means to live for Him and to reflect His character in our daily life uh, with one another. Okay, cool. There you go. Okay. All right. Okay. Not too long. Not too long. I'm just. I'm just looking at Luke chapter twenty-three. Yeah. Okay. So our second passage for days for today is Luke chapter twenty-three. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him, brought Jesus, before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, "We found this man misleading our nation." And forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. So here are the chief priests bringing Jesus before the Roman governor. Why? Because only Pilate, the Roman governor, could sentence Jesus to death. So these religious leaders, as much as they hated Jesus, as much as they thought he deserved to die, could not, under Roman rule, under Roman law, sentence him to death. Only the military, only the Roman government could do this. But that was the catch. You see, they had to work the system. You see, it was not good enough for them to say, oh, he's blaspheming. There, there is no, no law in Roman law that says that, therefore you need to die for that. But there were lots and lots of laws which said that if you opposed the king, Caesar, if you tried to raise up an army to try to overthrow the Roman government, if you tried to incite rebellion, you know, that was punishable by death. So that's why they frame all the arguments in terms of that insurrection, in terms of that rebellion that Jesus, they claim, was trying to do. So um, that's why they say, verse 2, he's misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. So forbidding us to, you know, pay taxes, to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is the Christ or a king, meaning he's trying to set himself up as opposing Caesar's rule over this people. And that's why Pilate, when he interviews Jesus, asks him questions along these lines. Are you indeed trying to incite rebellion? Are you indeed trying to set up yourself as a king? Are you a king of the Jews? The king of the Jews, sorry, verse 3. And Jesus, um, just an interesting answer, he says, you said so. He didn't say, yes, I am. He didn't say, I am the king. But he says, you've claimed this and you've said so. And then Pilate is just confused. <laughs> he goes back to the chief priest in verse 4. He says, this guy is not guilty. You know, why have you brought him to me? You know, I find no guilt in this man. But they're trying to work the system again, verse 5. He stirs up the people. He's teaching everywhere. He's raising up an army from Galilee even to this place. So Galilee's up north. Judea's down south. He's covered a lot of ground, gaining supporters for his movement. So picking up from verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean, whether he indeed did come from up north. 
And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. It's the Passover, so everyone was in the city at that time, including Pilate, by the way. Pilate is usually stationed somewhere else. But because this was the time when everyone gathered for the Passover, this biggest celebration of the year, he needed to be there to make sure that there weren't incidences of riots and rebellion at this point in time. That's why he was there. Herod was there. So he sent him to Herod because Herod's jurisdiction is up north. And he who was himself at Jerusalem at that time, verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Oh, you can imagine, you know, these two officials interviewing Jesus, Herod and Pilate, and in the background, all these backseat drivers all these chief priests going oh he said that he did that you know you question him and the center was jesus just not entertaining them not answering any of the questions he made no answer verse 9 but the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him verse 11 and herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him then arraying him with splendid clothing he sent him back to pilate dressed him up you know, in this robe, you know, he's supposed to be a king, right? And so he dressed him like a king. Oh, look at him, but he's been beaten up. So imagine these robes, but then drenched with, you know, with blood. You know, he's beaten and bruised. Verse 12, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other on that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. So these two enemies became friends over Jesus. It's, it's so sordid. Uh, verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, and he's just trying to be realistic, you know, okay, all right, you know, enough is enough. So he says to them, verse 14, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. And this reinforces the innocence of Jesus, even an impartial Roman non-believing governor, together with this other guy, this other official, who is just like this puppet king, you know, who is really cruel. You know, he, he, he calls himself Jewish, but he really isn't. He doesn't, he doesn't really honor God, but even he doesn't find anything wrong with Jesus. He already tortured him to kind of like teach him a lesson and humiliated him by dressing him up in a robe, but even he found him innocent. And so verse, six, uh, verse 16, I will therefore punish and release him. You know, what you want me is to teach him a lesson. Tell him not to do this anymore, and, and I'll make I'll make sure I'll I'll do you a favor. I'll I'll torture him. I'll treat, but you know this idea of killing him. We don't have any basis for him, and this again underscores the fact that even his enemies found him innocent. Yeah, verse eighteen. But they cried out together. They all cried out together. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. And he explains to us who this guy Barabbas is. Verse 19, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So all the things they're claiming Jesus did, this guy actually did do. <laughs> he actually did try to oppose Caesar. He did try to raise a rebellion and he did actually kill people. Verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more. 
desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Notice it back and forth. You know, Pilate is trying to say, wait, oh, come on, you know, this, this guy, you know, is innocent. But they say, kill him, kill him. And the more he defends him, the more heated you know, the reaction is. And at first, away with him, but now crucify him. They're actually giving him, giving the sentence themselves. And they're pressurizing Pilate, actually, through their mom behavior, all of them shouting at the same time. So when he says they all, uh, it's not just the chief priests, but probably this crowd all in Jerusalem as well. They've just whipped them into this frenzy. A third time, verse 22, he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore, I will punish him. And release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So, verse 24 Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So, he released the guilty person. He handed over the innocent person to their will, their will to kill this man, their will to release the person who was guilty. Just drawing a line here temporarily and, and just to mention that this is the gospel. You know, we're going to be celebrating Easter um, in just a few weeks. And the release of this guilty man who deserves death, who should be condemned, but instead was released because the innocent man was killed on his behalf as a substitute. That is the gospel because we are Barabbas. You know, Barabbas literally means Bar Abbas, son of the father. And it's just ironic that this son of the father is released and the son of God is killed. We become the son of the father through the death of the son of God. So this is the gospel. This is actually good news. It's why it's called Good Friday, the day when Jesus was condemned and killed on the cross. Verse 26, And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was Cyrene, 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 who was coming in from the country and laid him on the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So Jesus is pointing to the reality of God's judgment for our sins, that day will come. And the fact that when we see in Jesus his condemnation, and we're tempted to say, oh, well, Hotama, <laughs> look at Jesus. You know, they're all, they're all mourning for him, verse 27. They were lamenting for him. But Jesus essentially turns to them, you should lament for yourselves, because unless you repent, unless you trust that this is what you deserve <laughs> because you're looking at again you think of anyone whom you do love who's going through an ordeal 
You think of someone who is going through a terrible tragedy and you think, oh wow, that's such a horrible thing. How could that thing happen to that person? Jesus is almost saying, if we understood you know, God's judgment on us for our sin, we would probably say, actually, that's what I deserve. Not, oh, oh wow, no, so, so poor thing, but actually, that's what I deserve. Unless we see that, that is what we will receive at the end times. You know, he says, when now the wood is green, meaning now salvation is still open, that opportunity to repent is still there, and we don't t make the most of it, then when it dries up, when those opportunities are gone, you know, what will our mourning be like? We'll be even more desperate. We'll be even more um, hopeless. In other words, Jesus is saying, he's saying, if there's a proper time, an opportune time for us to turn back to God. Now is the time. Now is the time. Verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by, watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also this inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amazing, isn't it? Jesus himself is on the cross. He's dying and he's giving this promise, you will be with me in paradise. And the striking word to me is just the word today. And it's so certain, today, and you will be with me, with Jesus in this paradise. And the paradise points back to that word Eden, you know, the Garden of Eden at creation when God walked with man. And the word for Eden means paradise, meaning it's going to be the restoration of that relationship again with God, being able to be with him in this paradise of life and fullness again that will happen for this person who is dying today because Jesus gives it to him today. And all he did was recognize his own sin. You know, we receiving what, what we have indeed done we, this is just what we're dying for you know it's just but this person is innocent and recognizing that therefore jesus through his death is able to bring him into his kingdom that's remarkable verse 42 remember me when you come into your kingdom you know when you see someone coming into their kingdom it's when they get their car keys or when they get you know, that big office, you know, that's coming to their position of power and privilege. Jesus coming into his kingdom means he's being nailed. You know, people are shouting abuse at him, 
But that's God's way of crowning his king on the cross. And for some reason, we don't know what's happening here, but for some reason, this one dying lone thief on the cross recognizes that this is the way that God is bringing Jesus into his right hand of glory and power and authority and salvation. And Jesus gives him that promise. Yep, you're right. You're going to be with me in that kingdom, in that paradise today. Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now Jesus says to God, calls him his father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he dies and then he breathes his last. It shows that Jesus has been in control all the way to the end of his death. He commits his spirit to God. It's he who breathes his last. You know, yes, they nailed him to the cross, but at the same time, he didn't defend himself. He knew that this was the end of his journey. He set his face to come to Jerusalem precisely to die on the cross, and it's on the cross that he achieves everything that God gave him to do, God's will and then he commits his spirit into God's hands at his last act of will. So in a loud voice, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And at that moment, all kinds of stuff happened. You know, there was darkness over the whole land. The sun's light failed. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, meaning this separation layer between the most holy place, between coming to contact with God, that was just torn apart and there's no longer this veil that's separating us from God into coming into his presence. And this centurion is this, again, Roman, non-Christian, non-believing person, but recognizes innocence in Jesus and he confesses him. You know, this man certainly was innocent. Yeah. Hmm. Verse 15, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action and he was looking for the kingdom of God, meaning he was a member of this council, this group of people who were initially, remember the groups of chief priests, all of them were trying to kill Jesus. Uh, they were all really respected, really powerful religious leaders, leaders in the temple, that kind of thing. And all of them were trying to kill Jesus. All, they were the ones who brought him before Pilate. But there was one guy in that group. He said, you know, I'm not going to do this. Verse 51, he had not consented to their decision and action, and he was actually looking for the kingdom of God. Verse 52, this man, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid, had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. 
Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. We see two groups of people uh, in the beginning and towards the end. The first half, we see the chief priests all wanting to kill Jesus. We see Pilate and Herod who find Jesus innocent, but you know they still punish him. They still try to get their way uh, with him. You know they still punish him to teach him a lesson, and they become friends as a result. <coughs> but they don't find him innocent enough to risk their um, their their position. So they're pressured into killing him and thought, ah, okay, what's 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 the matter? We will just kill him. And we see the crowds as well, you know, all shouting at Jesus, telling him to, you know, save himself if he really is the Christ. And so it's very, very dark. It begins with a picture of how everyone, you know, everyone's against Jesus. Everyone's trumping up charges against him. Everyone wants him killed. But towards the end, we see these individuals, uh, these these surprising individuals who express faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's very, very encouraging. So we already talked about the thief on the cross. For some reason, he's able to see that Jesus is innocent and say that, you know, I want I want you to, Jesus, please remember me in your kingdom. And he receives salvation on the cross. We see again the centurion, this non-Christian person who sees in Jesus something that no one else is able to see. He really is innocent. And he cries it out and he, he recognizes it through all the events, especially even with him committing his spirit to God and with the darkness that falls upon the land. He's able to connect the dots and go that, hey, all these things pronounces this innocent on this man, almost like God is pronouncing his innocence on Jesus. And the centurion, this outsider, recognizes that. And finally, this guy named Joseph of Arimathea, who's a member of the people, you know, this religious elite who wanted to kill Jesus, but he dissociates himself from them. And he actually goes to Pilate, the person who just killed Jesus, and asks for the body, verse 52. The, the man, this man, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And that's tremendous faith and trust in a leader who's just died, by the way, who's just been killed by the person you're asking the body from. And it's almost like going to the president of the United States and asking for the body of Osama bin Laden. It's that kind of really, really radical, kind of like crazy thing to do that has no benefit to you whatsoever, except for the fact that this person really was innocent, did not deserve to die, and really was the son of God. And so Joseph and the centurion and this thief on the cross express a trust and a faith in Christ in a way that is very, very bold, very, very unusual, and almost even very, very risky, you know, to themselves, you know, for what possessed them to do this? If only, if, if nothing else, but that they recognized in Jesus something that was truly remarkable, that he was innocent, that he really was the son of God, and that he had died a death that was undeserved. Now, I don't think they understood fully yet. They didn't, otherwise, they wouldn't have buried him. They, they didn't expect him to rise from the dead. But at the very least, they were, they were able to step aside from, all the, from everyone else. And the point I'm trying to get at is actually that stepping aside and stepping out of that circle of influence. You see, Pilate knew that Jesus was, was innocent but still condemned him. Uh, the crowds, you know, we are not sure why is it they were crying out for Jesus to crucify, crucify him, but I suspect it's because there was a crowd. 
everyone else was crying out, crucify Jesus. And so easy to stay within that circle whereby you're just doing what everyone else is doing, whether it's sin or some kind of cry for some kind of uh, cause that you don't really subscribe to, but simply because everyone else is doing it, you feel pressured into doing it. Just because, you know, stepping out of the circle would mean, you know, being maybe in the, you know, crosshairs, the same way that Jesus was in the crosshairs. You know, you're putting yourself in danger the way that probably Joseph did by asking for Jesus' body. And not willing to do that means you're still within that circle, still within that influence. And all of us, I just want to say, this is what the Bible calls the world. This is what the Bible calls that kind of, um, that kind of thinking that is just not independent of ourselves, but it's almost slavish to the world. We're just doing what everyone else is doing. And therefore, we are very, very susceptible then to, to sin, to temptation, to anger, to rebellion. That is, a lot of it ourselves, uh, a reflection of our inner motivations, we're acting it out. But a lot of it is just simply just going along with what everyone else is doing. And therefore, becoming a Christian is, in a sense, thinking for yourself and evaluating the evidence and responding to that in a very logical and a very thoughtful manner. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, here in this chapter, which portrays Jesus as death, in other Gospels, it really just to say Jesus really is the Christ. He's dying for our sins. And we have that in the previous chapters as well. But right here, it's almost as if it's saying, will you actually look at the evidence? And if you were there, would you actually act on the evidence in a fair-minded and in a thoughtful way? Because most of the people could see the same things that all these other people did, but they didn't think rationally. They didn't act on it in a, in a loving way. They just did what everyone else expected them to do. Pilate, Herod, the crowds, the religious people. And for these people who actually trusted in Jesus to actually speak out and to act out what was consistent with their faith, with what they saw as the evidence, meant for them to speak out and to be dissociated from everyone else. The thief telling the other thief that we deserve this. Imagine, you know, you're being sentenced to death and you actually admit, you know, I deserve the sentence. God have mercy on me. Imagine the centurion who is the one who is in charge of killing Jesus going, uh-oh, I just killed someone who is innocent. Or Joseph coming up to Pilate, <laughs> this, this, this Roman governor who just has who just been talking to your peers who've been saying one thing, but you're saying something else saying, I want this body. I think this person didn't deserve to die and I'm going to bury him in my own grave. You know, all these take tremendous courage to stand for something that you know is true, that you know is right, and to trust in something that will make, you know, make a difference to you that is that's life and death, maybe even eternal life and eternal death. Yeah, so Luke chapter 23. We must have gone over... <laughs> okay, it's already seven o'clock. Sorry about that. Okay, all right. Let's let's look at our third chapter today. Ah, uh, it's okay. All right. What, what are you gonna do? You know, good good passage. Uh, worth spending some time looking at it closely. Job chapter thirty-eight. Then the Lord. I'm, I'm gonna have some water. Job chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you 
and you make it known to me. So God finally speaks for the first time to Job here in chapter 38. When everyone is saying, you know, God is so far aloof, you know, you have no place addressing God, God himself steps into the situation. Out of the whirlwind, out of, the, out of this storm, and he speaks directly to Job, you know, who is this who darkens my counsel without knowledge? So Job, you are kind of like speaking out of turn, but he does speak directly to him. I think no one expected him to do this. And it shows both God's godness, his power, and he is addressing someone who doesn't understand the situation, Job. And he is calling him to give account dressed like a man. You know, He is saying, I'm the one who will question you. You are not the one to question me. But at the same time, he is answering Job's question. He is actually um, fulfilling Job's request to have this audience with him. Verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted, for joy, you know, talking about God's role in creation, the foundation of the earth. He says, surely you know what was involved. You were there, you know, or who stretched the line upon it. You know, almost like, you know, God, you know, planning out and mapping out creation. You know, you know, uh, who, who was it who did? It's, it's me. It's God who did all these things. Verse 8, Or who shut the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed it limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place? that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked shall be shaken, and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness have you comprehended the expanse of the earth declare if you know all this where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home you know for you were born then and the number of your days is great i find it funny that god is able to speak ironically <laughs> to to us, almost to poke fun of it. You you know this right? You, you were there right? You know you did this right? You know who did this? I wonder. I wonder who who created the earth or who. You know it's it's almost funny and it's very ironic. And you know you imagine God to just make statements of truth, but you know God is almost almost um. I don't know. It's it's making this this this. It's not a speech. It's it's this challenge. You know, it's almost it's almost like a conversation that God is saying. You know, do you know this? 
who, who, what do you think you're talking about? You know, were you there? I wonder who who made the earth and who um, made limits for the sea. You know, have you have you done this? Have you done that? And obviously, we're meant to go. Oh no, no, no! I'm, I obviously only you could have done this, God. But still, the fact that God reminds us of His power and His, you know, His. Uniqueness as creator in this way causes us to reflect again upon his role and his he's teaching us by in a way that is reminding us as well something that we should know something that we should reflect upon um, in terms of all you know it's kind of like a teacher reminding us of all the lessons we should have learned but kind of like we've forgotten. <laughs> Verse twenty two, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail which I reserved for the time of trouble? For the day of battle and war, what is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, "Here we are"? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom, or who can tilt the waterskins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Hmm. Yeah, I, fi- I find it really hard to comment on this because it's almost like commenting on God. <laughs> I find it surprising, you know. You know, this is not what you would expect God to sound like in a sense. You know what sound like? You know, the kind of things He would say to you. Um, sounds slightly upset if I'm if I'm if I'm honest. You know, said you know, who are you to say this kind of thing? But at the same time, it shows God's concern. That of all people, Job, hey, Job, you understand who it is that you're dealing with. You know, you've known me as this God, and I'm the one who did all these things. But you know this, but you need to know this. You know, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? And we're meant to go, yes, it's you. Yes, it's you. Yes, it's you. You created the earth. You created me. You gave me my mind. You gave me my understanding. And the ending, you know, about how you are the one who gives food to the lion and the ravens as well. This is a providing God, a gracious God, but still a powerful God who needs to remind us that he's the one who oversees all aspects of creation from its beginning to the end, you know, from from all the big things like all the weather and even the constellations, the Pleiades 
and to the feeding of these animals. You know, God has concerns for every single aspect of life, of motion, of the elements in creation. And he says, you know, can you do this? You know, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that the flood of waters may cover you? You know, God is saying, you know, uh, we are not able to do this, much less understand the mechanics of it. But at the same time, it's meant to say that you can. We, we trust. We, we're meant to respond by saying, we trust that you're doing this, you're in control, and you're good. Yeah. Okay, right. I think, I think, yeah, it's quite self-explanatory, but it's quite fun to read, actually. Imagine, you know, being able to read, um, uh, you're playing a movie and you're playing like God in a movie and this were the lines that were given to you, kind of like a Morgan Freeman role in, was it Evan Almighty, um, that movie? Yeah. Um, so playing God and these, these would be the lines, you know, in the Bible that God speaks directly, you know, in such a, in quite a long speech as well. You know, an ending. I think it carries on for a few chapters. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Job 38. Okay, let's go to our last chapter, Second Corinthians chapter 8. And this is Paul writing. Uh, I'm going to read through the entire thing, and then I may or may not comment on it. I don't know. I feel quite kind of tired already. Yeah, and also I have fried chicken. <laughs> Looking forward to that for dinner. I made fried chicken by not frying it. I put it in the oven. It's, it's okay. It's not as crispy, but healthier, I guess, which means I can eat more. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time sh should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. 
as it is written, whomever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So the context of this is Paul is bringing money to Jerusalem. Jerusalem has a famine and um, there is a severe situation over there. So he's going around the churches uh, collecting aid to bring to Jerusalem. And all these churches are all Gentile. They're not Jewish. All these churches were planted by Paul and are young churches. Uh, but they want to support, um, they want to give help, monetary help to Jerusalem. And they've said to Paul, you know, please take this money. And he starts with the churches in Macedonia. So this is an area of Philippi, Thessalonica, and yeah. So some of those churches over there. But he says that actually they are very, very poor, and yet they gave money. So verse 2, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty, they're actually a very poor church and a very young church, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So actually they gave a lot of money. I think that's what he's hinting at, even though they actually were very, very poor to start with. And verse 3, they gave according to what they could, according to their means, and actually beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And, he, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So this is actually a response to God, not to the situation, not just to the need, but they gave themselves to God. And it's out of that overflow of that commitment that they've decided, I'm going to commit to help you as well. So verse 6, accordingly, we urge Titus that he has he started, he should complete among you this act of grace. So Titus was going back to this church, your church, the Corinthian church. He says, at one point in time, you wanted to help out as well. So Titus is coming to you to kind of like finish and to actually collect that help that you promised that you, of your own accord, you promised that you wanted to give. So that's why he is kind of encouraging them. Please, you know, you've already kind of like pledged this, honor that pledge. Verse 7, as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace. Here, grace means giving. You know, this giving generously, this giving not because you owe it to them, but out of love, out of generosity, abundance to them. 
So uh, apparently, I think the Corinthian church compared to definitely the situation in Jerusalem, but also definitely compared to these other younger and, um, well, actually, they're just as young. They were planted around the same time. But these much poorer churches in Macedonia, you know, they're much more wealthy. You know, saying, you know, and then how he talks about maybe you should be giving more. So that's what he's trying to hint at. Verse 8. I say this not as a command. By the way, you know, already a lot of people are going, oh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, Paul is not, not embarrassed to ask, ask this, actually. He's got to say, you know, he says, you have more, you should give more. By the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He reminds them of the gospel. But in this illustration about money, you know, Jesus is the ultimate rich man, become the ultimate poor man. So poor, not just because he didn't have a lot of money, but because he died our sins. So poor, he didn't have anyone to help him. He submitted himself. He became a slave and he died. You know, the ultimate poverty, therefore, is actually death, but death as a criminal and taking on the death of someone else. He, he became poor for our sakes so that through his poverty, we might become rich. And therefore, the kind of richness he's talking here is talking about eternal life, not just wealth, but, you know, forgiveness and status before God, you know, being able to be called sons and daughters of God. Verse 10, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. You know, this is for your blessing. A year ago, you started not only by doing this work, but the desire to do it. You actually wanted to help out a year ago. So verse 11, finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by completing it as what you completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not what he does not have. So it's dependent on your means. So it's not asking you to give something that you don't have, but you know, it's, 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 you know, what, what you do have, you know, that's okay. Verse 13, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that that's a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their needs. So he's, he's saying, I'm not saying that just because there's a need there, therefore you should be burdened. But he's saying, actually, you do have abundance. And it's not. I'm not talking to people who don't have access, who aren't blessed materially because you are. So therefore, this actually, in a sense, isn't really a burden. It's not that kind of pressure. It's because actually you have the means and ability to help out. So verse 14, your abundance at this present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need as well. So wait a minute, you know, they're in famine, they're in need. How is it that they have abundance? But it's talking about, I think, their spiritual abundance, you know, their spiritual help that they're able to overflow onto you, that there may be fairness. So as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. We actually read this verse, I can't remember when, uh, this was when they were collecting the manna. You remember, um, they were supposed to go out and collect um, two omers per person or something like that. And apparently some collected more, but everything is ngang ngam ho, just enough. And those who didn't collect enough, eh, ngang ngam ho also <laughs> enough. And there's this kind of fairness. God always providing for us enough, enough, not too much and not too little as well. In, at the end of it, what it's saying is that actually God is behind the giving. God is behind that grace. And it ends then with just the logistics, you know, sending Titus. 
So Titus is going to be sent to them. Verse 70, he not only accepted our appeal, but he himself is very earnest in coming to you. So with him, they're sending this other brother. We don't know who he is, but apparently he is famous, verse 18, among the churches for his preaching. So perhaps to build them up, to teach them the gospel. Not only that, he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. And here Paul is talking about how he's not doing this alone. There's oversight. There's a team of them. And he's almost like taking representatives representatives to all the churches. That's why I said the churches you know, are the ones who are appointing this brother, meaning he's representing those churches who've given the money so that he's the one uh, he can say that he's carrying the money on their behalf. So it's not just that they're giving everything to Paul. So he can say this much was given, therefore it is actually this much that they're going to receive. So we take this course, verse 20, so that no one can blameless about this generous gift so that it can be accountable. For we aim at what is honorable, not in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. You see, Paul here wants to be as transparent as possible, not just saying, you know, I'm accountable to God only. No, he wants to be accountable full stop. And that's, that's very commendable. Verse 22, And with him we are sending a brother whom we've often tested, found earnest in many matters, but who is now even more, now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. I wonder, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for his benefit. I was about to say, I wonder who this is. It doesn't say, uh, is it Paulos, is it someone else? We don't know. We don't know. Uh, but Titus, they do know. Titus is a friend and he's named again and again. He's someone whom Paul really loves, but they know as well in this church. And he's, he commends him commends him verse 23 he is my partner a fellow worker for your benefit and as for our brothers they are messengers of the churches the glory of christ so we are a team yeah we give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men so he's commending them to the church but he's also commending you guys as the church to these guys you know we've talked about how generous you were you know how we love you and you love us as well there have been problems in the past but you know at behind this is all god's grace god's goodness god's blessing working to bless one another you know such that we're able to work together and we're able to help one another in our times of need yeah so very practical passage about helping one another uh, interesting that it's between churches do you see that you know between uh, different pastors as well uh, i think um, underlying this you know sometimes especially if we are a big church and we are a sufficient church and we are a loving church and get 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 me wrong it, sometimes that goes to, that often goes together maybe it's more reason not less to be partnering with other churches especially not just those who are also equally strong but this concept of fairness again of blessing one another means we should be partnering with, maybe with those that need help those who are um yeah could really benefit from your abundance in that sense and not just looking for those at the same level sometimes we tend to do that we call it like-mindedness we call it you know partnership but actually partnership need not be between equal strong equally strong people but actually it's those with abundance in one area who are able to benefit from abundance in another area so you know again churches that tend to be strong doctrinally in in teaching gifts maybe they need help in terms of you know generosity and love and just humility and sometimes you find that in churches which may not be blessed with the kind of leaders or the kind of um 
you know, that's why, you know, Paul is sending around this guy who's able to teach very, very well. Not, not every church has an Apollos, has a Paul, has a Timothy. And so they would be blessed as well, having leaders who are able to go and encourage one another and build one another throughout like this. It doesn't make them any less a church. You know, they're still, you know, equipped and they're still sufficient in and of themselves. But this can only advance the gospel. This can only build us up even more when you're able to work with one another. And I think the strongest convicting church that you see here are the ones in Macedonia. You know, they are out of their poverty. <laughs> they are the ones who are giving the most. And you do see this sometimes, you know, whenever there is like a call for help. Sometimes the people who are the most generous are the ones who have the least. And it is very, very convicting that when, when that happens. And Paul does not pull his punches. You know, he says, you know, look at them, you know. They committed themselves to God. They committed themselves to us in this cause and helping out this situation. You guys, you guys are the ones with all the gifts, with all the abundance materially, you know, with all the leaders and with all the, again, this special talents. You know, maybe as a matter of fairness, just acknowledging all the blessings and grace God has given you, why don't you chip in as well? I think that's very convicting. Uh, being here in Cambridge where every church, you know, is kind of like doing very well you know the ones that are relatively not doing well are kind of doing very well as well in every aspect of life you know we have students we have leaders we have people coming in and out we have all these companies around here they're employing all the members that kind of thing and actually maybe thinking beyond cambridge you know that's that's how maybe we can broaden our perspective and see where help can be given and where we can sometimes receive that perspective of generosity as well to see actually how people can be maybe even more loving than us, even though they don't have the kind of gifts that we have, even more generous than us, more committed to God than us, even though they don't have this kind of abundance that this Corinthian church had the way that we might have here in Cambridge as well. But Paul does not pull his punches. He's willing to kind of like lay it on thick on this church. And maybe sometimes, sometimes I wonder if we would do well, do well to kind of like challenge the congregations and our members the same way that Paul does here with these Christians. Okay, all right. Uh, with that, I'm going to end. Um, and I'm going to end with a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these challenging uh, passages especially the, for those of us who feel sufficient in and of ourselves, in our own churches. You know, we have everything that we need, we feel. And, you know, we are in a position to be of great help to those who don't, you know, have the kind of blessings and abundance that we enjoy. You know, help us to be challenged by these possessions and by these verses, and especially by the Lord Jesus Christ, about how we've been blessed through His poverty and how though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes, and how we, in our abundance and in our talents, can do with some poverty, to do with some humility in sharing you know, the blessings of Christ with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to respond in a way that first commits ourselves to you, commits ourselves to your grace and thankfulness and in humility and repentance as well, and therefore commit ourselves to the cause of the gospel by being one in Christ with others who are also proclaiming Christ to help each other stand in faithfulness and hopefulness until the day of Christ. We thank you and we praise this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.